Welcome to the Ambassador Lounge Podcast. This is Episode 5, recorded December 16, 2019. Your hosts today are, Aryan, and, Ashish. Hi, I'm Aryan Schwartz. I'm based in Melbourne, Australia, and work as a lead platform engineer at Digio, while also representing our sister brand CMD Solutions in the Ambassador Program. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Ashish. I'm based out of Melbourne, Australia. I work for a company called Versend, and I'm a technical director for security and identity there, uh, with primary focus being cloud security. Welcome to another episode all about reInvent. Today, this is focused on the security perspective of things. So, I'm here with Ashish. Hello. And Ashish. Uh, sure, I, I'll, I'll give an introduction about myself. Uh, my name is Ashish. I am the host for the Cloud Security Podcast. And Ian and I are collaborating this, on this podcast for my DevSecOps uh, episode. Uh, so if you are listening to this on the Cloud Security Podcast, hello. If you're listening to this on the Ariane's Podcast, hello. Uh, do, yeah, I think we, I like talking security, hence I'm here. Let's talk security. <laughs> I guess we, the way we're going to talk about this DevSecOps episode is we're going to separate out the AWS security products, the new products that were released. We're going to talk about uh, any new features or changes to existing security products. And we're going to talk about the AWS security features that are added to existing products, which are not necessarily security products. And um, that's how we're going to do it. So, uh, sorry, and let's just go with the first one. Um, the IAM Access Analyzer, what's your thoughts on it? Um, obviously, it's a very interesting new tool. You are probably better from <laughs> a yeah. security perspective. Yeah, yeah. and uh, being next DevSecOps, I, I want to put DevOps first. Let's, let's put DevOps first and then the DevSecOps comes in. <laughs> yeah. So this allows you to detect permissions, uh, that how they have been used, so they are handed publicly across account, yep. things like that. So at the moment, it seems mostly a purely security feature. Yeah. Um, from the host perspective, in that case, it would just be, it makes it easier yep. to detect these things. But I can also see more coming out of it when the service grows, oh. that you will get a bit more information out of it, that you can use it to, um, for example, find out exactly what is being used by users or roles, and that way ensure that you get more fine yeah, information. and to your point, it's actually quite difficult if you were to think about from an engineering perspective as well, where if you have a large enough team, and if you have a lot of IAM users or IAM roles, after a point, after a certain scale, it gets quite difficult to see how many people have access to, I guess, an admin access versus how many people have read-only access, how many people have like a mix of admin and read-only access. So I, I see yeah. what you mean. Like it, 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 the potential is a lot more than just being. Oh, I'm just going because the way it is positioned at the moment, it looks at any IAM role or policy which has been provided with public access or across account access. It, it's only region based, but still, it kind of gives gives you that perspective that oh, I at least know these many roles in my account has permission in, enough permission for it to give a resource cross-account access or have public access. So I see there's a lot more potential. So what about use cases? So I guess you're going to mention one use case, or a potential use case. The security use case that I thought of was a if you have, a, say, if you're a startup or a small company primarily relying on IAM users, or even if you're a big enterprise which is using IAM roles to 
map out what kind of privileges you have shared. It, it's, it's a great tool to start analyzing the current state, which uh, depending on what your scale is, you could be looking at, oh, how many people have cross-account access? How many people have, should they have cross-account access? Or how many people have public access? Is that intentional or unintentional? If you look at the service in AWS Console, it allows you to kind of resolve as well as call out which is an intentional service. So they obviously understand there's like a public access service that S3 buckets sometimes need to be public. So you need to allow that. So that's, well, I think that to your point, I like this service because it gives a huge potential for future more DevSecOps kind of work coming in. Cool. All right. Next one. And I think the probably worthwhile calling out the way we are doing this is we've obviously divided the three sections. We're going through each section and we talk about the service which has been released or the service that we're talking about from a DevOps and engineering perspective. Then we bring in a security perspective. And then I guess we add our use cases so people know what they can do with it. And as always, we'll appreciate if you guys and girls have more thoughts on this. Uh, we would love to hear back from you. I guess um, you can reach out on our socials or reach out on the podcast pages uh, that we would have on the hosting sites. But yeah, just putting that in there before we go on to the next one. Cool. All right. Also worth pointing out, this is all based on an article that you wrote. Oh, yeah. That people should just check out and it's in the show notes. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks for the plugin. <laughs> really appreciate the plugin. Uh, all right. Next service, uh, AWS Detective. What do you think of this one? I think it's interesting. So, yes, it's in a way, it's yet another collation <laughs> service yeah. of AWS logs. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've kind of felt that as well. It's, it's really interesting. And it, it's my pet peeve, right? Um, because similar to how engineering would have a lot of monitoring dashboards for a lot of applications, you, I, I, the way, if you were to imagine this as an engineer or as a DevOps person who's managing the fleet of applications for an entire enterprise, you have multiple dashboards to look at already, right? You don't want to be like individually looking at dashboard one for certain features, dashboard two for certain features. You just want everything in one, one space. I, and to your point about, uh, this being like yet another dashboard because I kind of felt that the whole AWS security hub it was a great start but you kind of mentioned something initially when we were talking offline yeah. that there is a bit of a difference between AWS security hub and AWS detective what was that? Yeah so in my opinion and again um, as it's still in preview yeah. we haven't had yeah. any heads on yet <laughs> yeah. from my understanding the security hub is focused on giving you a broad overview of all the security related features running in your accounts yeah. and potential issues there. Yeah. AWS Detective is more focused on root cause analysis for basically more at the application level. So oh. workload level. Oh, so if I had I guess an application which is behaving incorrectly, like say for example, if I had hundred requests per second that used to be the average, but now suddenly I'm receiving ten thousand requests per second it could be a potential. And again, it's a preview, so we're just speculating here. Yeah, it's pure speculation. It's, I wouldn't be surprised if it is possible with them. Oh. I still feel like it's probably mostly focused on the security aspect, but the 10,000 requests per second would likely indicate some, either something has gone really wrong with your application, yeah. or we mentioned your site on our podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly it gets a lot of spike, and you're like, oh my God, I'm so popular. <laughs> But the most likely case is probably that you're under DDoS or similar attack. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I think it's a really good service from that perspective that security folks should definitely be, I guess, considering as well, both from your perspective that, and again, uh, this is where engineering and security can work together to, to identify what's a regular pattern 
versus what's not a regular pattern and whether some, when something is a threat versus when something is not a threat. Like I think that's kind of where there could be a lot more collaboration done as well between security and DevOps. The use cases that they mentioned and this is not listed um, is triage security finding, incident investigation or threat hunting, which kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like primarily a security tool right now, but could be much more than that. Yeah, in many ways, I feel like it's a thing of it like that way. I feel like security hub is a what's going on at the moment and detective is more for after the fact, finding out what happened. Oh yeah, actually that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I like I like that way. Yeah, perfect. Hopefully you <laughs> can you can use that to also find things before they happen. Yeah, yeah, so well, yeah. happening. But yeah, yeah. Or uh, detect rather than respond. I guess. Yeah. Cool. Um, AWS Nitro enclaves. Thoughts yeah. on that? So this is really interesting one in my opinion. The way they mentioned it is using everything they've done for Nitro, basically that allows all the fancy new instance types like now the Graviton tool and all of that. And building on top of that, they now allow an extra layer of isolation from the from the data? Yeah, between the data and the underlying host as well. So it's even more isolated than just as a VM. Oh yeah, and I kind of like the fact that uh, it's not just uh, isolation of, and I think obviously it's a new kind of um, processing that that's, that's being provided from instance types for different instance types. The security feature for me in this is the fact that isolation for PII and health data or any kind of sensitive data is great, but having a faster processing also means that you will not feel latency between, oh, and it, it needs to go to this Containerized or this isolated space inside my processes, so it's going to take some time. So I like the fact that they've optimized that as well, considering that oh, you still get the security benefits of isolation without losing the performance of how it would be regularly. I guess that is that a, is that a good way to put it across? Yeah, I think so. Cool. And I think from and we kind of touched on this already. The use cases: uh, additional isolation and security for high sensitive data. And um, you can do memory-based encryption from what I understand as well. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how we go. Yeah, what I'm interested in with this one as well is if it's, for many use cases, it might um, replace dedicated instances. Oh. Which, obviously, at the moment, carry a, I think, $1 per VM per hour um, right. surcharge. Yeah. And This would reduce it further. Well... As far as my understanding is, this is basically a software solution that you don't pay for, or oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's part of the process. So you just pay for the instance type, and that's pretty yeah. much it. Yes, that's right. And it's a, it's a, it's a feature of the instance type that you're using, yeah. Rather than so, whatever the instance type cost is, you just pay that, and exactly, if you add that to a reserved instance, you're definitely looking at security as well as I guess engineering capability at a low cost. Wow, you they managed to combine all three. <laughs> it's like oh, yeah. great job AWS. <laughs> Amazon Code Guru. What are your thoughts on this one? Code Guru is interesting. Um I say that a lot. I know this <laughs> but it's because it is. At the moment Code Guru is its biggest limitation in my opinion is that it's supported it's only supports Java. Mm-hmm. Yep. And who wants to learn Java, right? <laughs> who wants to learn Java? And now all the enterprise people listening yeah. are shouting at us. <laughs> they all hate us now, right? They're like, What? Why not Java? <laughs> Best language ever. Yeah, at the moment the big use case for Code Guru it has 
two parts to it. It has a code review process where it tells you, hey, you can do this better, mm -hmm. which is really nice and obviously has some good, has some strong potential as it's been trained on the actual AWS and Amazon yeah, that's, so that, that's the best part, I think, because it's, and it's like, you know, to your point, it's because it's the Amazon court, not that we're saying that, oh, trust it because it's Amazon, but it's a fact more that, well, someone who has a much bigger scale of business than an average company in Australia or any other average company in the US anywhere as well, it's, it's a lot more information for a machine learning algorithm to go through and consume and understand versus a limited set of just, say, any local company over here. I don't want to name a company, but if you were to imagine the biggest telecom company that you would have in your, in your, I guess, in your country, this is like that times 10 or that times the number of regions that are covered by AWS. That's the scale of code that is being processed over here. Yeah, exactly. And that's also why a lot of the recommendations that will be made are about optimization. Mm. And for obvious reasons, any millisecond that AWS can shave off in their code yeah. will have massive impact. So that is something they strongly... Yeah, yeah. And especially if you're like a digital uh, first kind of organization, you would find that milliseconds can really add up slowly. But every, every time a page loads or every time a code loads, a millisecond delay can add up depending on yeah. how much of it is actually accumulating. Um, I guess I love this service from a perspective that, and again, it's a preview mode, so um, there is a lot more to be seen from the service at this point in time before it becomes GA. But I like the potential in this that it could be something that we can use from an application security review perspective. We At the moment, we have other, I guess, providers that we rely on for it, or we have, I guess, application security guys in the organization who are going through this. But I think of this from a smaller scale perspective, if it was a startup who's like primarily on AWS, or if it's a small to medium sized business primarily on AWS, doesn't have the money for a security person, but they could just use a service like this to say, I can optimize my performance and get rid of the obvious security ones as well. Like any security flaws may come out of it, but that's a future potential for the service. That's why I am excited. I find it to be uh, something that I'll definitely keep an eye on. Cool. All right. Uh, kind of spoke about the use case for it, so we'll move to the next one. Amazon fraud detector. Yeah. So I guess based on the name, <laughs> it is very obvious what the use case for this is. Yeah, it is. Um, again, similar to some of the services released last year, like the recommendation engine from Amazon, this uses Amazon's fraud detection. Yeah. And I think and the way I would see it is like if you're a bank or a financial institute, which has been doing fraud for a very long time, you're like, well, why am I going to use this service? I think the potential of the service is that um, if you can use a service to make a fraud model template, the Amazon guys are providing a model that can consume a template, which is focused toward fraud, use your learning and combine that with machine learning to actually, yeah, to enhance what you may have already learned. If you're already doing machine learning, then you might still want to check out if they're doing something different to what you are, what you are doing. But otherwise, you will find the most benefit from this is the fact that it just adds on to that existing template you may have, I guess, in, in the organization. Would you agree? Yeah. Also, in addition to that, I would say that for smaller companies, not just the big banks, and they might be able to just more easily hook into this oh, and yeah. get some of the fraud detection. Yeah. It may not be as advanced then as what the banks with everything combined yeah. get, but it will be a lot more than nothing. And building something from scratch is just a lot of work. Yeah, and especially if you think about all the um, the neobanks and all the micro 
finance, whatever. I mean, I guess the, the fintech yep. space is exploding at the moment, so those guys can definitely use this. That that would be a great feature for them. At your point, it makes sense for them to at least start building on this now, maybe, and see how far they can go with it. Maybe start collecting, use this as a benchmark or a base for this is how we should be doing it. Yeah. Uh, so it might be good enough even for a lot of them to just stick to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's right. It could just be good enough just to stick to or stick to this one. Cool. The next one is AWS local zones. This is something I did not expect, but it's a logical next step for the outposts that yeah. now finally came out. Yeah. Um, for those who are not familiar with it, local zones is basically a sort of mini availability zone that is in a different city from the actual region. Mm-hmm. So the one, the only one currently available is in Los Angeles, which yeah. is tied to the Oregon region. Yeah, and I guess the potential for this is like if you're not have if you're not a if you're a country or a state or a region which is not close to an Amazon region, which is a different region. <laughs> you can extend a close by region to, uh, to somewhere local to you, a local data center through a partner. Now, um, I guess from a security perspective, you can probably use send your existing data center uh, security privileges across to uh, a partner, or I'll ask them to match those onto this. Uh, I, I this this is again speculation because we don't really know what it looks like. It's still in preview mode. <laughs> And the way it's been described it is extending, you should still be able to use your AWS APIs and you should still be able to use AWS services which are available in the region that you're closer to or the region that's acting as a local zone for you. So my, I guess, two cents from a security perspective on that is that means either you're looking at extending your on-prem, on-prem security features onto this, I guess, local zone. Or it could also mean that extending your Amazon features from your Amazon region onto your local zone. So you kind of need to, or it could be a matchup, or it could be a marrying the two together. So it'll be, we'll wait and see how we go. But uh, I, I feel like it's it's going to be uh, interesting from a lot of people doing migration, people moving towards hybrid. I think it's going to be a really interesting mix, especially if you have some kind of a regional governance requirement where you need to be in a certain region for all your data. That may be a good feature or a good service for people to look out for. Do you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And in addition, obviously, it is if you are very far from any region. Yeah. Like an obvious example in Australia is we have the one single region in Sydney. If you're based in Perth, that's what is it, 4,000 kilometers yeah. or something like that? <laughs> it's a long that, yeah, it's a long distance, yes. Yeah, that's a bit more latency than you might want. So yeah. if you have something running locally, it just the direct interface probably because keep in mind there's a lot less high availability and similar things that are possible yeah yeah but if you have it in a way it brings more compute to your local endpoints it does it does i think that that's the best part with having the same uh features as a cloud but more local to you than i guess than the service which, which probably comes with some latency Cool. So we, that that was the segment where we spoke about uh, the new products, security products that were released by AWS. The next segment is uh, AWS security product updates, existing products. The first one is AWS WAF, Touch and AWS Classic, WAF Classic. Sorry. So this was a release that went very under the radar for some reason. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why it was hidden in a blog post that just said, "Oh, we now have managed rules." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, underneath them, I didn't really realize until I saw the CloudFormation updates that had a Web 2. Yeah, Web 2.0. Web 2.0. And so... It's an, I think it's a very interesting one as well because you kind of mentioned when we were talking offline, you kind of mentioned um, that there was a it makes it's I guess it has a lot more free beer now, or you kind of mentioned something where it's optimized. One of the biggest changes to it is I think there are some billing changes as well. Yeah. But the other big change is to do with the limitations. Oh. So please tell more. It used to with the original with Web Classic. Yeah. I guess we call it now. You had a limit of how many rules you could have in your web. I believe there was a limit of 10 rules per actual ACL. Well, now everything is point-based. And you can... So if you look in the web console, you yes. and you look at the managed rules from AWS, which are now free to use. Yeah, they are. Yeah, that's the cost effectiveness. Yeah, that's the big advantage cost-wise. But you can have 1,500 points. Is On a single web. Yeah. Wow. That's so, a huge number from 10, I guess. Huge jump. Yeah, so it's not a one-to-one relationship. because So now the points are based on complexity. Interesting. So there are some that have that are maybe 50 points. Mm. There might, might be one that has 1,000 points. Oh. And it's all... I assume it's based on the complexity of the calculations or the speed that with which it can pass through these. Oh, so... That makes me question. So I guess because one common WAF rule that a lot of people that I talk to and a lot of customers, I'm sure you're talking to as well, they ask for is the OWASP top ten. Yep. Is is that because earlier um, there was no managed rule for it? From what I understand, it, we had to create our own or use a vendor base uh, vendor offering of a managed rule. Now I don't know what the complexity level for that is. Probably I'm assuming it'll be high, but. Did you? I, I didn't even. I, I'm sure not sure if the managed rules actually cover that. But is that something that you can call out? Like when you did the cloud formation templates, when you saw the cloud formation update, did you see in terms of whether easy to call out that? Oh, I just want a OWASP top ten. I want I don't know NIST top ten or something. I'm, obviously, I'm making up the NIST top ten, but um, just make, make like can you pick and choose complexity, or is it going to be more that? Oh no, this is what you get. I think it sounds more like it's... Yeah, so based on a specific rule, you that is the complexity that it has. So that's the number of points oh, it has. Right. So I'm honestly not entirely sure with like, the OWASP top 10. I wouldn't be surprised if, for example, they just split that out into 10 different oh, yeah, rules. Yeah. Oh yeah, because there's no charge. If it's an AWS managed rule, there's no charge for it anyway. So you could just say, oh, I just want protection for SQL injection, but... I've got CloudFront for DDoS, so I don't really care about that. Or I've got something else for object in, in object reference or whatever. So yeah. So um, at least if that's not the case, I believe that is what they should do. Yeah. Because well, not everybody has the same needs. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah. If you, you run a static site, you don't really care as much about SQL injection. SQL injection. Especially yeah. there's no database in the back, or are you protecting the SQL injection? Then if there's no database in the back, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, funny enough, that was the only uh, change to an existing security product. And as Arjun mentioned, it was under the radar as well. So no one really saw it coming until you actually logged into the console or like Arjun, you were on a cloud formation template trying to update it. You won't even notice it. So that's a good one that AWS sneaked in, but for some reason wasn't spoken about much. We moved on to the next section now. The next section is on update security features to existing products. And Amazon VPC ingress routing is the first one. 
Yeah, so it does exactly what it says. You can now route all your traffic, your incoming traffic, through a single point. Yeah. If only there were appliances <laughs> that were dedicated to dealing with those kind of things. Yeah, and I, I, so um, I guess the short version that I understand is you can assign route tables to VPC, um, which means that you can have, if you have an appliance that does peak packet inspection or yeah. an appliance that looks at I don't know, just what else you could be doing on it, but it's a whole separate discussion on whether you need them or not, but it's a possibility if you are an organization which requires deep packet inspection. There was VPC mirroring, which was kind of like a first version of if you could mirror VPC, but funny enough, because VPC flow logs doesn't really give you that detailed information. Yeah, this yeah. is I feel like this is a great addition for anyone who's trying to do deep packet inspection. That, oh, all my route traffic is going to go through here. If, I, if you have a host-based uh, agent as well, that you can you can channel that through, or you can route, sorry, not channel, but you can route that through a certain appliance as well. I think that is for me, that's a great feature, but obviously it comes with its own engineering challenges. Yeah, in a way it does. On the other hand, last year when we got transit gateways, yeah. one of the common patterns already happening that I assume you've seen as well is that there is a single entry point for all your different VPCs. Yes. Yes. So in a way, this built on top of that or mm-hmm. makes it a bit easier I guess uh, so in that regard this is already happening mm-hmm. but at the moment now there's like a probably a better pattern for it I guess or oh, there's an obvious pattern you don't have so yeah you don't have to hack your way around it you just have a route table that goes to a VPC endpoint or you just go alright I'm going to consume everything from this hardware appliance yeah, yeah I think the pattern definitely makes it a bit more easier now at least from the sounds of it next one is access analyzer for AWS S3 buckets this is an interesting one. Um, maybe I can take this off because I feel like it's a like it's one of those ones which is like a very security focused one, kind of like the detection one, and the IAM access analyzer. So it, it, this is funny enough how the name do two things very similar. So I wonder if there's a version coming out for VPC access analyzer as well or something like that. Uh, but the, the the whole point is that it goes through permission bucket policies and it would identify uh, S3 buckets that maybe. Um, open to the internet. It, I think the, the whole point behind this is a lot of products have been, I guess, introduced, a lot of SaaS products have been introduced in the space where because S3 buckets were being made public left and center, everyone talks about S3 bucket as that thing that, oh, what if your S3 buckets go public? That's kind of like the FUD approach a lot of people use. So I think this is Amazon, again, being more proactive. They've already taken out the, uh, I guess they've already made it a four or five step process to make an S3 bucket public on the console. So it's not, uh, it's not, it's not a straightforward process, but on top of it, they've even gone down the path of saying, Oh, well, we would ongoingly analyze the access you have on the bucket policies to make sure if something goes public, we, we notify you straight away and you can swiftly remediate it instead of waiting for a SaaS service, which probably updates in every 12 hours or whatever or maybe one, an hour to figure out a public is, uh, an S3 bucket is public. Yep. Do you want to agree, disagree? I agree. Do you want to add? Actually, I more have a question for you. Yeah. I, do you know if it only looks at the bucket level or also the object level? Uh, I think it does both from what I understand, but then again, uh, I have, have barely just gone through the notes. I haven't seen because I didn't have enough data to go through it. Do you, have, do you know if it looks at both? I don't know. That's why I was wondering because one of the common issues I see is that a bucket itself might be mostly not public. Ah, oh, yeah, but, but the objects maybe. An object might still 
Republic. Yeah. And it's an interesting one because the test that I ran was for the bucket. I didn't run a test for an object one. So, yeah, maybe if someone in the audience has done it, if you're listening to this and if you've done it or if you want to do it, please share, share, share some feedback. We would love uh, hearing. Although I'm pretty sure we come, um, Aryan and I'm going to just test it out pretty much after we finish recording. But uh, it's a great thing. I love the question. And if you guys want to come back to us as well, we'll appreciate that. Next one, running quickly through the time over here. We just have a few more to go. Access yeah. points. S3 access points, obviously, you, it allows you to limit access to specific data from specific places. Mm-hmm. It's on top of all the existing things. It's a way easier way to manage access from within a VPC to bucket. Yeah. Um, where before you had to go through the VPC endpoint, have 700 <laughs> buckets in there, and every, every application had the same access. Yeah, yeah. One big thing here also, what I find, is it allows you to differentiate read and write access more easily. Yeah, I was going to say the RBAC feature, the role-based access control feature is amazing. I think the way the use case of what I, uh, was, the way it was explained was uh, kind of like what you just mentioned, where you may have, uh, I don't know, a HR team who wants access to uh, data of how how awesome is the uh, ambassador program, that you, uh, AWS APN ambassador program that you and I are part of, how many people are there, which is growing quite a bit. And so, so now we give them access, but tomorrow engineering team comes in. We have this really awesome thing that we want to do for AWS APN ambassadors. We want access to that data now. If you look at it, you're like, oh, uh, so the second team, then there's a third team, fourth team. Everyone wants access to the same data, but now you have almost these four, five, or more different sets of users that you have to control access to. And to your point, you may some may require read access, some may require write access. It's it's a great way to centralize all of that. Just say uh, you just pass the same access point to everyone and define the kind of service that they can or define the kind of permission that they can have. They can have a read or a write on it. I think that's a great way to use that. That's why I like the service from a security perspective. You can uh, control access at scale. You can go granular if you want to, but at the same time, you can keep it core strain as well. So the next one is next generation ARM-based AWS Gravitation 2 processor with memory encryption. Long word. How do you, what do you think of this? It's awesome. We've seen not just uh, everywhere people are moving more towards ARM-based processor. Yeah. Um, we see them in all our phones and tablets and things like that all the time because they've got a much smaller energy footprint. And a lot of those processes are getting faster than the traditional Intel ones as oh. well right now. Yeah, I think, and I think for me, it was memory encryption, as the name suggests. <laughs> yeah. uh, they have made the uh, encryption process 50% faster. So encryption performance has obviously accelerated as well. So that's a great feature from my perspective. All right, we've got two more to go. Tips through, uh, quickly go through them. The event bridge schema registry. That's, yep. an, that's an interesting one because at least from a security perspective, what I found interesting was that if you're already using an event-driven model for, uh, for, I guess, for security findings and security remediation in the company, you can define a template for, or you can define, a, if I go with their word, you can define a schema for what it would look like in an event bridge. And based on that, you can have notification sent out. That's kind of what I like about it. But again, it's a preview, um, a lot of speculation. I don't know how effective it would be. Don't tell us how they're going to support Java, I guess. <laughs> no, there's no JSON support. But hey, I'm not complaining at the moment. We'll, we'll see how we go. 
Yeah, so the other flip side of that is um, the detection part as well. Yeah. So it will, or discovery is what it's called. Um, it allows you to just say, okay, please generate code snippets for me that I can put in my code that match the structure of the events that are incoming. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, so, even, so the, the, way I, so the way I see here that is, if I have a company that I'm not event-based at the moment, but I want to be, I can probably use the service to start off and set foundations for it. Yeah, so you can enable the discovery in your dev environment. Yeah. See all the incoming events. See, notice, hey, this is what structure will be like. Generate code for me. And suddenly you've got your code completion and everything in your IDE. Oh, wow. Oh, I like the service even more now. Um, last one, AWS Transit Gateway Network Manager. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to play with this one yet. I think no. the way I, and if I were to add, I would probably say... Um, it, and I guess it's rightly so because it's a service where a lot of people are talking uh, that a lot of people have soft teams, a lot of people have operation teams. They all have all these uh, sitemaps going from one end to the other. Imagine like a massive uh, room with a lot of televisions, a lot of televisions with a lot of dashboards. And this, this would be your one dashboard where you can see um, what's going through your traffic gateway, VPN, what's the uh, traffic flowing through it. It basically, uh, well, the way AWS is framed it, you can have your on-premise as well as AWS network traffic. And the way I read it is you can have your Azure traffic, GCP traffic, or any other traffic going in and going to a central place. But Network Manager is basically um, to reduce operational complexity of managing multiple networks across, multiple global networks. That's how I read it. Uh, but then again, I haven't used it much myself. I don't think we have a big enough scale uh, that people are ready to start off. So if anyone in the audience has already done this or using it, we would love to hear what you guys think because it's available in Sydney as well. So I don't know how many people over here do global uh, AWS. I'm sure quite a few do. So we'd love to hear from you guys. I think we've covered everything for today. I think so, so too. Yeah, it was a great discussion. Um, we kind of covered a lot of areas for security. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Yep. Thank you, Ashish. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And everybody, I'll hear you next time. See you guys. Bye. This has been an episode of Ambassador Lounge Podcast. Thank you for listening.